Welcome to the Punk Rock MBA podcast. What's up, everybody? I'm Finn McKenty. This is the Punk Rock MBA podcast. Today's guest is Glenn Fricker. You may know him as that guy on YouTube that screams about drum samples and smashes Line 6 spider amps and all that stuff. And he is that guy, but he's also a very smart, thoughtful guy who has managed to build up a very impressive YouTube following. I think he's up to... I don't know, 400 some thousand subscribers now. He's on his way to half a million subscribers. He's produced something like 1,200 videos or something like that. And he's one of the biggest names in kind of the gear audio recording kind of space. And that didn't happen by accident. So we sit down to talk about exactly how he did all of that, where he sees the channel going from here, and of course pull out a lot of tips and ideas and thoughts and pieces of advice for anybody watching or listening, I meant to say, who may want to start your own channel or maybe you have a channel and you wanna grow it. If you're into YouTube, then this one is for you because there's a ton of really good information in this one. But before we get into that, there are a couple things you can do to support the show if you would like to. Number one, you can share it on social media. That does a lot to help us because the podcast platforms kinda suck for discovery. They don't really surface the shows very much. So we'd appreciate that very much. Number two, you can support us on Patreon if you want to. Patrons get every show a week early. There's a chance to, patrons get every show a week early. There's a chance to have me review your band or YouTube channel or any other piece of creative work that you wanna get in front of me. Also, I want to mention my social media coaching program. This is a one-on-one coaching thing for two kinds of people. Number one, if you're a creator of any kind, for example, a YouTuber, a podcaster, and you wanna turn that into either your full-time job or a serious side hustle where you're making some real money, then I can help you do that. Number two, if you're a CEO or founder or independent professional of some kind, like if you want to grow your personal brand as a way of growing your company's business, for example, if you are an accountant or an attorney, photographer, anything like that, then I can help you do that. If you're interested in talking more to see if it's a fit for you, then just hit that link in the show notes, send me a note and we can talk. And with that out of the way, let's get into the show. Glenn, welcome to the show. We've spoken before, but I did a really bad job on the audio, so I thought I would make up for it and give people a chance to hear your words in sparkling, pristine SM7B audio. Uh, yeah, I am on, uh, what am I here? I'm on a lot in audio LS208, and this is like an end address condenser in this thing. I'm just in love with this thing. It's uh, I'm going to be doing a I'm going to be doing a video on how to get your your podcast audio right, and I'm going to be looking at like you know three or four different versions of like great voiceover mics from dirt cheap to like ultra top end kind of stuff. So, well, I think that's so a great that, idea for a video because in my personal experience, and I'm not nearly as good at this stuff as you or a lot of other people are, but I almost think spoken voice is harder to record and mix than instruments are in a lot of ways. It's kind of funny, you know, because uh, I was just having that that discussion with Warren Hewitt, who um, we're working on the same facility now, because he's like, why is your audio sound so much better than mine? And I'm like, I'm just using like Hollywood miking techniques. And it's where you put the mic and that kind of stuff. And a little bit of uh, post-processing treatment as well goes a long way. So, yes, it sounds that sounds like a tutorial I really need to do. Yeah. And especially now with more and more people getting into not just podcasting, but also streaming and Twitch and all that mm. kind of stuff. Right. Uh, I think that that's a big growth area for people and audio you know people who need to start thinking about audio people that like you know in the production world need to think about it as audio not just music and i think that'll open up a lot of opportunities for them 
Sure. Absolutely. And yeah, that's so, okay. I'm thinking, okay, I started a new series called tutorial Tuesdays. So if you haven't subscribed to the channel, please do. I've got regular stuff coming out every Tuesday where I teach different mixing techniques and whatnot, but I think this is going to be the subject for next Tuesday or a Tuesday coming up very shortly. You just gave me a great idea. Got it. Well, so tell me a little bit about what you're working on then with uh, what, what, what has you in LA? What you, you were talking to me earlier about kind of your, uh, new life as a conference call jockey. Tell me a little bit about what's going on there. <laughs> oh man, we got so much on the go. I mean, uh, Warren Hewitt, Alex Nasla and I started Lancaster audio about three years ago and we've been just laying the groundwork in the background for all this time. And who, who are Warren and Alex for anybody that may not be familiar with them? Warren Hewitt from Produce Like a Pro. If you haven't seen his show, it's great. You know, he did The Fray. He did Aerosmith. He did all, you know, he's got gold records all over the place. And uh, we, we met actually at Summer Nam there about three, four years ago and, and started hanging out. And we're very like-minded in a lot of ways. So it's just, it, it's, he's just a really great dude to work with. And Alex Nasla, who's working behind the scenes a lot of the time uh, from the Gear Gods channel. Uh, he's a really good friend. And so the three of us have the Lancaster Audio Company. And... Um, if you guys haven't heard of us, we do cabinet impulses, a lot of them, and we've got just all kinds of amazing shit on the go uh, in terms of software as well um, that I can't talk about too much until the official releases come out. So it's like we've had a lot of stuff brewing behind the scenes and it's really the pebble has been cast, so to speak. It's starting to roll downhill and the avalanche will be following shortly thereafter, I imagine. Well, I'm excited to see so many people such as yourself or, you know, Joey was kind of an early example of this. Of people have built their following in one thing, whether that's production or YouTube or some combination of those things, use that as a springboard to do something that kind of takes them into a whole other world of being an entrepreneur and, and running a business that isn't dependent on somebody else's platform. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's the thing. It's kind of funny you mentioned Joey because this is exactly kind of what got things started there. I think it was three years ago. Uh, we were at a pool party at NAM, and uh, I bumped into Joey and Joel and they're like, hey, you know, we're doing this, you know, URM nail the mix thing. And, you know, we're, we're doing very well at it. And I'm like, huh. Interesting. I should really think about maybe doing something like that, because, of course, back then I was still had my day job working in manufacturing and it sucked. <laughs> and I, I know you don't want to talk about this too much because you have your video coming up, but mm -hmm. I think it's very important for people to note that you didn't just walk away with that the moment you got sick of it. You stuck it out. And I think that oh, yeah. has enabled you to do, that has given you a degree of freedom that you wouldn't have if you walked away from it too soon. Oh, oh, absolutely. Believe me. It's like I wanted to leave my job five years ago because this YouTube thing was taking off. And in retrospect, I think I probably could have done it and I would have been absolutely fine, but I wanted to make sure I was absolutely set financially before I could walk away from it. because the job I had, you know, we're talking, you know, good wages, full benefits, pension, you name it. And this is the thing I walked away with uh, this summer without actually getting my full pension. But I'm getting a quote unquote uh, something a bit of a buyout, and I'm just reinvesting yeah. and making that. I'm not going to touch that money. Um, that money is going to do going to go to work for me, and hopefully, I can invest it better than the company was going to invest it. I would imagine you probably will be able to. You know, I, I think a lot about my uh, my dad and my stepmom, both of which were corrections officers. So they literally spent 
20, 25 years of their life, you know, locked in a building full of rapists and murderers and stuff. <laughs> Not the Jeez. easiest job in the world. And, but the, you know, they didn't, they didn't hate it, but there were days where they probably didn't want to be there, but they showed up every day and, you know, they're not rich by any means, but you know, because it's a government job, they've got that pension. They're good for the rest of their lives now. Whereas I see a lot of right. other people like, you know, my, my mom's friends who quit every job as soon as they got sick of it, you know, are now in their seventies and, and have like $40,000 to their name and are like, what the fuck am I going to do for the rest of my life? Right. So I think there's a lot to be said for, you know, I, I would never encourage people to stick around forever in a situation that makes them super unhappy. But at the same time, there's a lot to be said for sticking it out, you know, once you have built uh, to the point where you've built yourself a foundation that enables you to have a little bit of freedom and de-risk your life. Sure. I, I, I totally get that. I mean, like, that's the thing. I saw my parents go through the recession of the early 80s and struggle. And I remember saying to myself, being like a 10-year-old kid, I am never going to live my life that way. And I never have. I've always been on, on, the, on the mindset that don't buy it unless you can actually pay for it right now. So I, credit card debt is something I've never had to struggle with. It's like credit cards there to make a purchase, pay it off immediately, move on to the next thing. I remember I was carrying, <laughs> this is really hilarious because you've heard me mention Henry Rollins so many times before is I, I remember I used to watch the Henry Rollins show and he was doing a rant about credit card debt. I swear I paid my credit card off the next fucking day. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I got into a little bit of that a couple grand like years ago, not, not enough that it was like a problem or anything, but I, I noticed right. what everyone talks about is like, wow, if you make the minimum payment, you're going to take like three or four years to pay off a couple thousand dollars. Oh, exactly. And here's the thing, you know, and, and, and just kind of go on with that or to kind of extrapolate that. It's really funny you mentioned that the minimum payment thing. So I paid my house off in 2012 and that was kind of the catalyst for doing my YouTube show because I had that freedom then. It's like, okay, great. I'm going to say exactly what I want on my show. And if it tanks my studio business, so be it. You know, I'm going to go down swinging. You know what I mean? At least I'm going to say what's on my mind because at least my house is paid for it. They can't take that away from me. I don't need the studio as the extra income at this point. Here, here, here's the funny thing about that, about paying the house off. This is the really important part. And if there's one thing anybody takes away from this, it's this. If you've got a mortgage and you come up with some extra money, in my case, both myself and my wife were working and we, we don't have children. So we had a bit of a nest egg going and I had a five-year plan to pay off my house. And I was talking with a buddy of mine at work, a guy named James Crosby, who's uh, probably the most intellectual dude I ever met in that plant. And he said to me, yeah, that's a pretty good plan. Why don't you pay your house off right now? And I'm like, well, you're going to have to pay a penalty. And he's like, okay, well, how much is that penalty? And I'm like, well, I don't know. He's like, well, why don't you find out? So called up the bank and I, or well, actually, no, I went to the bank and I said, hey, I really want to think, talk about paying off my mortgage. Said, oh, you'll have to pay a penalty. Because I love throwing that. You'll have to pay a penalty. Yeah. What a fucking racket. A fucking penalty for paying off your loan. Like, so you're screwed either way. Oh, this is where it gets interesting. So I said, said to the bank teller, I said, great, what's the penalty? Well, we don't know. <laughs> what do you mean you don't know? I said, well, you've got two hours to find out. Or I call my lawyer. <laughs> And so I got a phone call in two hours. They're like, hi, yeah, it's the bank. Uh, so we looked into it and the penalty for paying off your mortgage is $300. <laughs> I'm like, great, I'll see you tomorrow. I'm paying it off. And yeah, we went down there and paid off the mortgage that day or the next day, sorry. 
And I swear it was like somebody undid a rope knot mm-hmm. in my shoulders. And it was just, it was the most freeing thing ever. Just remember, we signed that paper. I was like, yes. <laughs> I paid off my student loans and my car, which combined, you know, a lot a couple of years ago, maybe about a year and a half ago or something. It was the same feeling. I was like, you know, I'm not debt free, but pretty close to it. You know, the only thing we have to pay for now is our mortgage, which, you know, is not very much you know, relative to Seattle, which is still really expensive. But the point here that I think is really important for anybody who wants to be a full-time creator or creator of any time is like, don't be in debt. (laughs) You know, all the stuff we're talking about with like interest rates and debt and like all this kind of shit, it may not sound very exciting or very fun, but this is the difference between freedom. And I don't want to use the word slavery because that's a little bit dramatic, but servitude. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. This is the difference. And so you could spend, just like you were saying, the time that you spent to find out what that penalty was like, what if you never asked that question? What if you just did what most people do and shrug your shoulders and kept paying that mortgage? Right. Well, that that was the thing. I, I did the math. I think I saved myself $45,000 by paying that mortgage off that early. I'm sure you did. I was just like, holy shit. And that's why I'm like, okay, fuck it. I'm going I'm to do YouTube now. Or at least I'm going to start doing YouTube shows. Maybe I'll get a little bit of traction. But I'm going to say exactly what the fuck's on my mind because now I've got a certain degree of freedom to be able to do that. Yeah. Like now, you know, our bills are so low because all I have mm-hmm. is like, you know, our mortgage and food or whatever. I could work at Hot Topic and pay the bills if I had to. Sure. I'd rather that, not. That's but like <laughs> if the shit really hit the fan, I could do that. Sure. Oh yeah, that that's that's the thing. Yeah, debt. Um, a friend of mine, I remember, what was it? it was Mark Farner from uh, Grand Funk Railroad said this in my buddy's movie called the uh, Border City Music Project. Said debt is a weapon, and I would tend to agree with that. To uh, great, debt is the great motivator. It is uh, definitely the thing that makes people get up, and get out of bed, and do the really shitty jobs that they fucking hate. Yep. And the thing that I really like about having very low or no debt is that it enables you to say no to things. So if yes. someone comes to you with a project that you're like, nah, I don't know, rather do my own thing, you can say no. Exactly. Uh, just for the record, though, I find more interesting shit happens when you say yes to things. Oh, I completely agree. Yes, that's a great point. However, you know, there are some things that I've been offered that were a great deal for me at a couple mm. years ago. Like at the mm-hmm. time, I was very excited to say yes to them, and I'm glad I did. But, you know, you outgrow certain things. And when you can sort of dictate the terms, it's a pretty good place to be. Sure. Absolutely. And, yeah, there's definitely been some projects I've had uh, come up on the show where people are like, hey, would you like to do something like this? And I'm like, eh, you know what? I don't think that's in the best interest of my audience. Uh, it, here's the thing. if I, I'm not going to demo something unless I think it's really fucking cool. I mean, I'm sure people offer you money all the time to do a demo video of something where uh, maybe in another world, if you did have that chain of debt around your neck, you know, you would feel a little bit more inclined to say yes to it. Oh, I'm sure I would. Believe me, sometimes, you know, I get some offers and it's like, it's really hard to say no. I'm like, wow, that's that pays a lot. But uh, you know what? I got to say no to this one because I, for me anyway, I mean, like honesty to the audience is everything. If I don't have that, I don't have a show. Yeah, exactly. And so it enables you to play the long game and do what's best for you and your audience in the long term instead of like, oh, fuck, I got to pay off that credit card bill this month. Right, exactly. So one of the things we were talking about earlier that I think would be inspiring to people because my audience is a little bit older than most, you know, I don't know about you, but 
Uh, on YouTube, my biggest group is the, what is it, 25 to 34 group or whatever. Oh, wow. Which I think is pretty old for YouTube standards. <laughs> and I know there's a lot of people like me. You know, I didn't graduate from college until I was 30. And I, I, at the time, I felt like I was so behind. You know, I felt like that was ancient. And I was like, oh, my God, I fucked everything up. I'm never going to be able to, like, make anything of myself. We were talking about earlier that you didn't feel you, you said you didn't really have any success until until you're 44 in music. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, like I've had a day job working in manufacturing since 1993. And I, ju I just basically walked away last month. And that's after, like I said, years of laying the groundwork. I mean, but what I did was when I wasn't working at the plant, I was working on my audio skills and running a studio and recording local bands. And I was totally happy with that. Don't get me wrong. It, it was great. And I got to do a lot of cool stuff. None of the releases I did did very well, except for maybe one or two. And uh, the most prominent thing I think I did were the first two Woods of Replay records, which if you're a black metal fan, you know, those records were just massive. But we're not talking, you know, chart top topping, you know, platinum records or anything like that, because that wasn't my that wasn't my wheelhouse, so to speak. But had a lot of fun recording bands, and if I had continued on, I would have been absolutely fine. And and that's the thing. It, go, it all goes on with paying off the house and just having that certain degree of freedom. And I started doing YouTube, and this is the thing. After doing you know local bands for 15, 16 years or whatever... I saw the same mistakes still being made Yeah, where bands are coming in, not ready to record. People don't know the stuff they have to play. Bass players being completely worthless, that kind of thing. It, it was not changing. It didn't matter how long I did this. The bands were all the same level of proficiency or pretty much the same, whereas they had no business coming into the studio in a lot of cases. So I did how to get your band ready for the studio. And I remember releasing that on the Andy Sneap forum back in the day. And a whole bunch of people were like, Oh, you're going to hurt your business. You're going to hurt your business. And at that point, like I said, I had my house paid off. I'm like, okay, I might hurt my business. Fuck. So who gives a shit? Yeah. I'm just going to say what's on my mind. And uh, a lot of people were like, we want to see more. And then a few people were like, you're being way too honest. This was on YouTube, but you promoted it to the Andy Sneap forum. Yeah, exactly. And that's where I got my first feedback, which at the time was, like the hub for kind of, I don't know, bedroom producers is the right word because they weren't all bedroom people, but kind of the, the hub for really dedicated metal producers on the internet. Sure, exactly. It's ridiculous how many guys who hung out on the Andy Sneap forum all have careers now. It's, yeah. it's, it's really mind-blowing. Nobody knew that we were kind of laying the groundwork for the next generation of metal producers, but that's kind of what happened. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, everybody was on there. Like yeah, Joey was on there, the Periphery guys, Lassa Lammer, yeah, Brett mm -hmm. uh, from uh, from Kalissa. Yeah, I mean, geez, the Alestorm guys. Geez, and I'm sure I'm missing about 80 of them as well. So I apologize. And not to mention all the people who maybe didn't ever post on there, but read it. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, it was just a wonderful resource. So that was great. And I remember, like I said, I remember posting up that video. A bunch of people like a lot of a lot of people were mad, but a lot of people really dug it. They're like, do more. And it, it took me about a year to figure out what to do. I think that was 2013. I put that up and I was kind of scratching my head and kind of like, no, oh, kind of kind of already said what I wanted to say. I'm not sure what to do. And, you know, and it took a little while to figure out what I was going to do. Well, how do you how do you come up with new ideas? Because you've done what, maybe 900 videos or something now? 
at least something like that. I've got a huge list. I just basically, the one thing I've learned is if I get an idea, write it down. It's kind of funny because I, I did the uh, how to get your band ready for the studio and that was a two-parter and it was just basically I had written something in the late 90s to help bands prepare better for the studio and never quite finished it and it just languished there for years and then I said, once I paid my house off, I'm like, I should really finish this so I can give it to bands, but I'll try doing it on YouTube. Maybe I can reach more people. So that's what happened. And uh, about a year later, I did how to hold a microphone because, you know, the bad mic technique Mm -hmm. thing has always been, you know, a personal pet peeve. And I remember going down to Memphis and checking out a blues band down playing outside and the singer is just doing the cup the mic thing. And I'm like, this is really universal, isn't it? It doesn't matter what genre. Nobody knows how to hold these fucking things. I didn't realize that blues bands did that too. I thought it was only like local deathcore bands. Uh, no, it's pretty much universal. Like I said, you give humans the most basic technology, they'll figure out a way to fuck it up. Absolutely. I know I do. <laughs> so, that was the inspiration for how to hold a microphone. And I knew I was onto something with that when I got an angry phone call from a client of mine. <laughs> you motherfucking son of a bitch. You think you're making fun? I'm like, okay, okay. Gl- glad you watched the video. And I'm like, dude, it wasn't just kind of directed at you. It was kind of directed at everybody. Well, it's an interesting thing that I've experienced too is not only about myself, but, but lots of other people I've worked with. Controversy is almost always beneficial to you in the end. Oh, yeah. That's one thing I've not learned. always, not but always. you know, like especially if it's some serious crime or something like that. But oh. if it's just people arguing over an idea, that pretty much always helps you. Surprisingly, yes, I, I've always found that it's like people people love drama for some strange reason. They sure do, and I mean, for example, like we have both capitalized on the drama around trapped. <laughs> That I got I got to give that to Rob Scallon actually. Um I met him at my very first NAM in 2015. We had a very long conversation about 2-3 hours and he explained to me it's like, "Hey, you can make a living on YouTube doing this." And um every event I go to where I I run into him, I have to buy him a beer. Because uh, thanks to Rob and a few other people, I have a career now on YouTube, which is fucking amazing. Well, you know, sometimes all it takes is that one conversation with the right person at the right time to just Make that light switch go off, and then you're off to the races. Yeah. Yeah. Nam, my first Nam was a real eye opener for me. It's like I went down there, got an idea for what the music business really was, and flew home to Windsor, like, why are we ever getting the shit under the stick here? <laughs> but, right, the trapped thing. Yeah. That was actually Rob. He, he had asked me if I could do a video on the whole trapped situation because they were, uh, I guess, uh, freebooting is the word they came up with after the fact. I called it click theft. Oh, that's right. I forgot that you did that one years ago. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there was a whole thing with this. They reposted, was it your video or whose video was it that they reposted? No, they they were reposting Rob Scowan and Jared Dine's videos. And it wasn't just Trapped. It was also uh, We Are Triumphant Records. Like, what a bunch of scumbags. Seriously. It's like... So they were downloading Rob and Jared's videos and posting them on Facebook as native videos from their pages in order to get the engagement around that and grow their page. Correct. Yes, I've got a wonderful video on it. It's called Click Theft. It's for Idiots. I remember this. Yes. And so that was a big video for you. Yes, it was huge, especially because Chris Taylor Brown, the vocalist frontman of Trapped, filed a trademark complaint with YouTube against me because I dared use his logo. Oh, wow. Which he lost, I might add. And I got to use my, one of my best one-liner takedowns ever And I'm uh, the week after that because I said, dear Chris, you know, it's like, 
I do appreciate the fact you don't like what I'm saying about your ban, and I do appreciate the fact that you took time out to file a trademark complaint, but the whole idea behind trademark <laughs> is so you can put that logo on your product and nobody else can. And trust me, nobody is going to want to put that logo on a product because these days it's pretty much a guarantee it's not going to sell. <laughs> not to mention the fact that the whole basis of the video is about intellectual property theft on their part. So it's right. very ironic that he would choose to play that card. Uh, I, well, speaking of playing, I don't think he was actually playing with a full deck. So that that's... Uh... No, he definitely isn't. I mean, I just talked about this in a video the other day. Like, you know, the guy's obviously an asshole, but he's definitely not well. And, uh, you know, it's clear that he's been this way for years. So this is true. That's a little sad, but, uh, you know... That's uh, hardly unique in the music industry for someone in a band, especially the singer, to be a little bit unstable. Sure. And yeah, that's unfortunate. And I hope he gets well soon. But it doesn't excuse his behavior. No, it doesn't. And it certainly hasn't helped his record sales lately. That's for sure. No, sure hasn't. <laughs> well, so what are the other... I mean, your your channel, I would say... I don't want to say that it like thrives on controversy because it's not exactly that. I would say that it's like sort of leads with controversy but ultimately is about like education sure but you have certainly used controversy very effectively can you talk about kind of when you realized the power of that was it with that first video or was there another time i think it was with that first video because it did way better than i ever expected and you know the channel was humming along quite quite well it was doing okay you know, I was doing like a video a week and then I got, uh, we had a major shutdown at work and I was off for a couple months. So I bumped that up to three videos a week and that seemed to do well. But it was the spring 2016 when I did my first episode of Stupid Musician Text. That's when things just exploded. Right, right. Because this was kind of based off uh, a few conversations and some screenshots some friends were sharing. And I'm like, you guys mind if I put this in a video? I'll like blank out all the names and stuff. But I mean, this is kind of an interesting inside look at what really goes on. And this shit's hilarious. And next thing I know, yeah, the channel just blew up. I went from like 27,000 subscribers to 100,000 in about six months. Oh, wow. I've never hit those numbers uh, since in terms of subscribers. But, you know, I'm grateful for when it did happen. And it's just kind of been a steady thing ever since. Yeah, and so you're you're what, a little bit shy of four hundred now? Yeah, I'm about three eighty, three eighty one, something like that right now. And uh at four hundred thousand subscribers, that's when my next contest ends, which is uh my oldies but baddies cover song competition. It's all nineties songs. It's the whole idea is takes take a terrible song from the nineties and make a metal cover of it. I think it's a great idea for a contest. The nineties are hot. And and a music video. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, because we did one for the uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s a couple of years back, and we, it was just an absolute riot. So many bands did so many amazing videos. It's just so cool to see all these talented people out there doing this amazing stuff. And, you know, if I can help bring a little bit of light forward, I'm more than happy to do it. Give them, you know, bring them to my audience and hopefully help them grow their own thing. I'm all for that. Absolutely. Hey there, I'm Johnny Christ from Avenge Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. 
As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street. But first, I want to thank DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're not familiar, DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put their music into online stores and streaming services. So in plain language, if you have ever wondered how to get your music on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many, many more, there's like dozens and dozens of different streaming services. DistroKid is the way to do it. It is super easy. I have used it to put my music on Spotify. It took me maybe five minutes to like set it up and upload everything. It's legitimately awesome. I am sincerely a fan of this company and their product. And for those of you who have asked, you can also upload your music to TikTok with DistroKid. And if you want a chance to get featured on DistroKid's Spotify playlists, You can do that by submitting a song through Spotlight and getting your fans to vote for you. You can also use Hyperfollow to get more Spotify followers. You can promote your new release as well as Spotify Canvas. That's where there's the video in the background in the player. And when you share it on Instagram, it shares that video too to make your Spotify release pop. And Spotify Canvas is available to all DistroKid artists. Like I said, as you can probably tell from this, like I am sincerely a fan of DistroKid. DistroKid can do everything I just talked about and so much more. So be sure to sign up with my link, which is in the show notes for this episode, to get 7% off your first year. That link is in the show notes of this episode or go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. Well, I wanted to poke at the subscribers thing a little bit because I think that's something that's maybe not well understood by everybody. In social media in general, people get very fixated on sort of the top line, most obvious number, like number of followers. But subscribers don't really mean anything on YouTube. Not anymore, anyway. You know, 2014, 2015, they sure did because all my videos were hitting quite well. And then now I'm, you know, at almost 400,000 subscribers and a lot of my videos aren't getting the numbers anymore. And it's like, what the hell, YouTube? If the subscribers don't matter, why keep count? Yeah, exactly. That's kind of how I feel about it is like people are so fixated on that number and it means almost nothing. Like if I yeah. put out a video tomorrow about basket weaving, some topic my audience doesn't care about it we get five thousand views even though i have two hundred and forty thousand subscribers you're at 240 yeah congratulations man that's amazing good for you you're, you're killing it by the way i i absolutely love your show you're, you're just absolutely nailing it right now so good for you man well i appreciate it but the larger point is that i think it's important for people to focus on what actually matters which is either business results or views or what focus on mm-hmm. what actually matters not that top line number that may be the one that 
dumb people in the press talk about. Sure, exactly. I it's engagement, it's about, you know, can you make a living doing this? I mean, like there's guys with, you know, maybe 50,000 subscribers who do this full time, but you know, they teach lessons or they sell lessons or yep. have some product of their own and do very very well for themselves. Yep, and you see on the other hand, you know, there's sometimes you'll see someone comes out with one viral video of some kind or another that gets, you know, 2 million views or something, but their channel only has 8,000 views. And so they kind of failed to connect the dots there between this one particular piece of content and them as a human being. Sure. I, I totally get that. It's, it's not easy. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. And I guess, uh, yeah, you know, there's no... So people are saying, well, what is the number to pay attention to? Well, there, I don't think there is any one number. I think it's everything. How much do you look at your analytics and kind of, you know, think about things from that perspective? Uh, according to uh, my friends and family, way too much. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's kind of funny, you know, you had that post up on Facebook last week about, you know, how you change the thumbnail and title in your mm -hmm. video and it took off, you know? So I tried that cause I had the thing, Oh, can we find honest gear reviews? And I remember the first thing in my, that video was actually a comment about trapped. So I changed the title to trapped only gets sells 600 copies of their album the first week. That's my number one video in the last two weeks, by the way, now. There you go. <laughs> it was doing very mediocre. And then I, I did that. I love your thing about, you know, put a band name in the title because that actually does work. Yep. It's like uh, you, le you lead them in with, uh, you know, the shiny object and then hopefully give them something a little bit more substantial. Sure. I'm going to be putting that to an even bigger test. I just had did an interview video with the guy who mixed uh, Megadeth Peace Cells, but who's buying, which is one of my absolute favorite records, mm -hmm. in, especially in terms of drum sounds. Yep. So we, we got a nice little 20 minute video on that. And I'm going to have Megadeth in the title. We'll see how that does, you know? Yeah. You know, it, it sucks. I wouldn't say it's deceptive necessarily, but no, you know, it's just you have to understand what is going to make people pay attention to this particular piece of content, which may mm. or may not be presenting it in the way that you want to present it. But it's like, if they don't click, they don't watch, and it doesn't matter how good the piece of content is. Yep. I'm sorry. I'm just getting an angry m email from some guy. Where's my fucking cock blocker? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so the last batch of that went out, and uh, they'll be going, they should be arriving to everybody shortly, by the way. Finally got that done. So are, are you fulfilling all of those or are people yelling at you on behalf of someone else? Yeah, that's pretty much it. Pretty, um, I'm working with a company from Europe. It's been interesting, especially with the whole COVID thing. Cause oh, I'm sure. Customs and whatnot. I did my last push just before the pandemic happened. So it's like uh, the, I was supposed to be a 90-day wait period to get your pedal. And a lot of people are finally just getting theirs now kind of thing. Man, people, uh, you know, well, this is a whole other thing. I can talk about that later. But I wanted to get back to the analytics thing because I hear a lot of people sort of give the advice of, you know, don't worry about the numbers. Don't look at your analytics. I think that's terrible advice. I think that's a really bad idea. <laughs> it, it, analytics are there so you can gauge your you can gauge how well your video is doing. I, I mean, again, I got to say this uh, about the whole title thing because I had a video up that went out today, which is my tutorial Tuesday thing, and I called it that SMG tutorial Tuesday, and I'm just looking it up here, and it was doing okay. It was like about an EQ trick on guitar, mm -hmm. so I dropped the uh, dropped the tutorial Tuesday title and just changed it to this EQ trick rules on metal guitar. Now it's my third best performing video in the last two weeks. So those little details can make exactly. that big of a difference and you would never know it 
if you didn't look at your analytics and the YouTube studio app now or, you know, studio website, whatever, does a really good job of kind of pointing you in the right direction of what's not working. Sure. Exactly. And I got to say, yeah, I'm surprised. I mean, like for a tutorial video, yeah, that came out a couple hours ago. It's doing quite well. And I'm like, hey, you know what? I'm happy about that. That's great. So yeah, Tutorial Tuesdays on SMG. Make sure you check it out, especially if you're a Reaper user, which is um, apparently a lot of you guys. <laughs> well, the whole Reaper thing, that's thats a whole other topic we could spend all day on. You know, I think we'll have to agree to disagree on that one. If it was up to me, I would probably ban Reaper. Wow. <laughs> I think I think should we, we should do an episode on this. I th- I'd really like to do that, Vin. You know, it, that's what our government is here for, to protect people from themselves. If that means saving the world from just one more Reaper user, that's a, a grenade I'm willing to jump on. Wow. <laughs> that's an interesting philosophy. I don't quite understand the mindset behind it, but sure. Well, I actually think Reaper is is pretty interesting. So for anybody who hasn't uh, used this or isn't familiar with it, it's a... a a, a DAW digital audio workstation. It's very popular with kind of the beginner bedroom producer kind of crowd. And I understand it's it's not only for beginners who have addressed this, but it is popular with that crowd. And it's because there's really nothing else that's that fully featured that's also affordable. And it seems so. I actually think Reaper is a very good DAW for pros because it's it's super powerful, but it's kind of hard. To, it has a steep learning curve. Um, sure. And it's interesting to me that the popularity of Reaper to me just reveals that there's like an obvious gap in the market for somebody to put out a DW that's similarly featured, similarly priced, and maybe a little bit easier to use. It just seems like everyone's leaving money on the table and Reaper is just walking away with it. It's a possibility. I mean, yeah. I, I always kind of gravitated towards the non-popular DAWs. I mean, for 10 years, maybe even 12 years, I was using Saw Studio, which like nobody uses. And I don't even know what that is. Uh, it's, it was uh, one of the earliest DAWs. It was originally just called Saw for Software Audio Workshop. It was uh-huh. designed by one guy, Bob Lentini, and it was written entirely in assembly code. Oh, wow. It was the most fastest, gnarliest thing you'd ever seen. I'm sure. And it was, it was very, very, very clean. And like I said, I worked with it for about 10 years. And I swear, in Windsor, Ontario, where I was from, I was the busiest studio in town. I was booked for a year because it got great results. Well, back then, you know, when horse when horsepower was limited, you know, writing tight code like that mattered. Yeah. In 2003, I mean, like my dog could just outperform anybody's really without any particular dedicated hardware. It was fantastic. But after 10 years, I got tired of staring at the same screen. I'm like, okay, I need a change. So I switched over to Reaper. If you actually go back to my first few videos, they were all done with saw screen caps, like how to record heavy guitar. That's using saw. Oh, really? I never noticed that. Well, maybe there's a saw skin for Reaper. Nah, I, the skins on Reaper are beautiful. That's a great thing. thing I like about Reaper is it's so customizable. You can set up... You can make it into anything. The scripts are amazing. Yeah. You know, I talk a lot of shit on Reaper, but it actually is a very good product. Yeah. I just... I personally think that the learning curve is so steep that it makes it difficult for beginners, but it is a very good piece of software. There's no question about that. I think it gets scoffed a lot because it's so cheap, you know? And do you know why it's so cheap? It's because it's the Winamp dude and he's rich as fuck. Exactly. And he doesn't care. Yeah, he basically said, I'm going to make a DAW for the masses and make it affordable. Yeah, I mean, it's essentially free if you want it to be. Yeah. It's not free, but it's free. I broke down and bought the commercial license finally. I figured, okay, I think I made a few bucks with this. It's like 200 bucks or something for the commercial one, right? Yeah, exactly. And 60 for the 
individual one or whatever it is. Exactly. Like the student license or the small studio license. Yeah. 60 bucks. I mean, like, and what you get three versions out of it or something before you got to buy a new license. So, well, I'll, I will confess to everybody. I'm not proud of this, but I actually do. <laughs> I actually do use Reaper. Um, because I, my, my, the times where I have to use a DAW are so rare that it wouldn't make any sense for me to like pay hundreds of dollars for Cubase or something. So I actually do use Reaper because it's what I just said. It's like fully featured. It's cheap. And I know I know how to use a DAW well enough that the learning curve isn't a problem for me. So, you know, sure. I'm not proud of this, but this is the moment where I'm willing to come out and acknowledge that I do use Reaper. <laughs> Question. Are you hitting the still evaluating button? You know it. Of course I am. <laughs> Right on. That's amazing. I'll be evaluating it for the rest of my life. I said I broke down and bought the license, but yeah, I'm recording recording to Reaper right now. Well, nobody's perfect. So, well, <laughs> speaking of gear, I think you know you have you have a a heavily gear oriented channel. Oh, oh, oh! Let me ref- let me rephrase that. Yeah, nobody's perfect except for every single modern metal band putting stuff out these days. Yeah, there's a very good chance, especially if you're into like you know the genty kind of stuff. There's a very good chance that something you like was made with Reaper. So don't let everyone tell you it's not good. (laughs) So speaking of gear, though, one of the things that I hear from people a lot, whether that's musicians or YouTubers or anybody, is they have gear fear. They think that they don't have the right stuff to like, well, I want to start a YouTube channel, but I need to wait until I have X or Y, or I want to start making music, but I need to wait until I upgrade my computer and get this or that, which I, I just, I hate hearing that from people because they're holding themselves back. It's not true. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, you just gave me a great idea for a video. Can I can I can I take that idea and run with it? Please do. I can see the reflection in your glasses that you are literally writing this down right now. Yeah, yeah, this is a great idea. This is why I said this is how I get ideas for new videos. I just fucking write them down. This is what I do too. I read my comments usually or sometimes like I'm in the car with my wife and we'll be talking about something and it'll give me an idea for a video and I'll just yep. open up Evernote and jot it down so I don't forget it. Yeah, exactly. That That's fantastic. Well, this is the thing, man. I started recording bands with uh, Metalithic Systems Digital Wings for Audio Board, which nobody's ever heard of. Is that some primitive old sound card? Yes, it is. I've still got it. I've got like, it's like number 36 off the line or something insane like that. Metalithic Systems was going to do this hardware software combination and it was going to be revolutionary. It was going to be 128 tracks. We're talking 1997. Right. And they had the software. It was pretty good. And then, you know, they were going to put out this new hardware thing. And I don't know, they ran out of money or something like that. So they gave everybody a copy of Cubase and I wound up going with Cakewalk. But the hardware worked. So that's what I did with, but I mean, like I was using a PA board for my mic pre's to start with when I was recording bands, when I just started. And then I got one of those crappy Rolls Bellari preamps, you know, with the little vacuum tube in. I mean, like Behringer does pretty much the same thing these days. Right. You know, the gear doesn't matter that much. It's nice to have nice gear. In my, in my experience, nice gear will just speed up your process, but it's, it's not going to hold you back. I mean, especially think about this in 2020. Whether you're making videos or music, the people that you look up to like made great work with stuff that is absolute trash by today's standards. Right, right, right. Yeah. Again, I'm stealing that. That's great. (laughs) I mean, you've talked to millions of producers, I'm sure, who will tell you about how they like were copying and pasting drum samples by hand in 2002 on some piece of shit old Mac G3 or something like Whatever you have now, it's better than what your heroes had 
10 or 15 or 20 years ago. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, this is the thing. Mike Prees, Mike Prees, Mike Prees, Mike Prees. You, you, you know, if you spend any time at all on gear slots, apparently nothing you could buy is ever good enough. <laughs> right. And, you know, and it's like, which is just insane because even the pre's in the most basic Behringer uh, converters are amazing by, by, you know, past standards. I forget who it was. I talked to somebody that recorded the hook for some like actual like Billboard top 10 pop song. I don't know if it was Beyonce, but it was somebody like that on the fucking built in mic of a uh, uh, Apogee one interface in a hotel room. Amazing. And it sounds fine. Yeah. You, you you don't need to drop a whole lot of money. And even when it, you know, and the thing is, there's so much amazing free shit out there in terms of plugins and app sims and, and that kind of stuff. You do not need to drop a whole lot of money. And how about for YouTube? You know, like, of course, it would be better if you're not using a smartphone. But mm -hmm. is there any reason why you shouldn't just start with that? Well, I mean, again, I go, I go back to this. My first couple of videos on YouTube were shot with a GH2. With an anamorphic lens, mind you, because I was in a real big anamorphic phase at that time. But you can, a GH2, you can get for like 150 bucks and it's going to be more than enough than what you need for YouTube. And that's a real full functional DSLR. Right, right. Yeah, that's true. You don't have to get the new one. Get the one that's several models older and it's still probably good enough to start with. Well, well now here's the thing. Maybe I should remember this and I'm going to put this down in, in my uh, notes here for this video is I remember one thing one of my college professors told me. Uh, this guy's name was Garrick Filewood and he was a very, very wise man. He, he said this to me. He said, always buy last year's technology because you're going to get almost the same functionality, but for a lot less money. Mm-hmm. It's so sad to me to see so many people, you know, holding back and waiting and not starting because, man, the sooner you like the, the sooner you start, the sooner you become successful. Right. That's the thing. Oh, I got to do this. Or, you know, if I don't have this, I can't start. No, no, no. Just start making content. That's the thing. You'll get better as you go along. Like my first few videos were really rudimentary. I had like a little, you know, homemade teleprompter. Actually, I think my first couple of videos, I didn't have a teleprompter. I just had a, uh, you know, uh, a laptop off just off screen where I, I would read and people would be like, hey, we can see your eyes shifting. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Yeah. And and I think for the first three years of YouTube, I, I had like a handmade teleprompter, which I made with like, you know, a picture frame I got from a dollar store and a couple of pencils to hold it up. You know, right. Duct tape to it. I don't know if you've seen any of my older videos, but they look like shit. And I don't even, yeah. I don't even think the ones that I do now look fantastic, but the older ones look terrible. They sound terrible and they still have like 700,000 views. Sure. And that, that's, that's the thing. Content is king. You know, if you've got something interesting to say, people will watch it. I find your videos fascinating because the way you break down and analyze shit, it's great. And I'm not great at making videos. Like I'm good at, I'm good at thinking. I'm not great at, you're way, 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 way better than I am at making videos. Well, yeah, here, here's the thing. I mean, like I took media arts when I was in college, so it was film and video, but there was audio production as well. So when I got my day job, I thought, oh, I'll open up a recording studio. That'll be easy and affordable. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Is that ever wrong? Open a recording studio. That's a great get rich quick scheme. Yeah, exactly. The thing was the recording, the, the recording technology was a little more accessible than the video technology was back then. It wasn't until about 2010, you know, when the first DSLRs with video capability came along. And that's when I started getting back in because originally I didn't even want to record bands. I wanted to, I wanted to make music videos. Hmm. And when the first couple DSLRs came along, I'm like, oh, this is cool. Again, found out about this on the Andy Sneap forum. Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, I'm like, oh, 
I can go to work now. I can do music videos. And so we, I, I actually did uh, in around 2011 to about 2013, I did quite a few music videos and realized if I wanted to get, ever get really good at it, I was going to have to, you know, pretty much put myself into it full time. Yeah. And then YouTube happened and I'm like, okay, well, fuck the music videos. I'm going to do YouTube because it's way more fun. Oh, yeah. And you probably make way more money at it, too. Yeah, like I did. Yeah. Well, it's like doing music videos for bands is a lot like doing records for bands. You're never going to make any money doing it. Yeah. You know, I used to make I always forget about this, but I used to make uh, videos back in the mini DV days. I don't know if you ever saw oh, wow. me talking about this, but back in like 2004 to 2006, uh, I did this magazine that was like one of the first hybrids that came with a print magazine, a CD and a DVD. And right on. I'm, I'm, it was like music and action sports stuff. We did um, about I think we did 13 or 14 issues, about 125,000 copies of each one distributed at like independent uh, action sports and music stores all over the country, like U.S. and Canada. And I remember like I remember thinking that those were pretty slick at the time. And I rewatched some of them as I can't even watch it now. They're so bad. But people loved them. Sure. And the footage I would get was just trash. Like, I remember we did something with Element, the skate brand, for uh, the release of Bam Margera. They had a, a video called Elementality that was, like, with Bam Margera and at the height of Bam. And the footage they sent us was, like, some one-chip mini-DV camera with, like, the onboard camera audio or the onboard mic audio in, like, you know, some... I don't know, fucking back room with like a super high ceiling and stuff. And people loved it. Sure. Because it was bam. Yeah, exactly. Again, it's it's the content that's that's what matters. The video content, it, it's like, you know, it, again, it's like the stu- kids in st- home studios and whatnot. Oh, I don't have the right gear. I don't have the right gear. This isn't going to sound good. No, no, no. You need to learn the fucking techniques. Or make the sounding bad your aesthetic or looking bad your aesthetic like now people go back and did you ever see any of those old skate videos from like the late 90s like early to mid to late 90s like the the mini dv moments with fisheye and everything dude 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 i i record i used to record a band in windsor that was called searching for chin so now people <laughs> like all the hipster kids buy old vx 1000s with a fisheye on them because they want to oh, recreate that like 1993 like terrible you know kind of crappy mini dv aesthetic because they like it so it's almost to me it's like well if you can't make something look or sound good then embrace the fact that it looks or sounds shitty right it's not right for every project but it's an option sure exactly i mean this is the thing my experience with video i mean like i said my my music videos were pretty terrible uh i was pretty good at band sequences but i could never really tell a story very well with a camera and that got better as I started doing YouTube. And the insane thing was, is once YouTube took off, uh, my day job took me off the floor and put me up in the office. And I started doing safety and training and promo videos for the company. Oh, okay. I even wound up, wound up doing all of management's headshots. And this is for like a major multinational corporation. And they had the best shot, headshots in the entire corporation at this plant. And everyone's like, where did you get these photos done? Oh, we just did them in the house. We picked the guy up off the line, <laughs> that kind of thing. But the thing is, just keep at it. You'll get better. You know what I mean? It's it's like I took my background and um, my education, which was multimedia, and was able to apply that into my show. And just by doing that over and over and over and over again, over a thousand episodes, I was able to refine my techniques and get better at it. So we all suck when we start. The trick is to not quit and keep doing it. Well, I think that's a pretty good note to end things on. I know you got about 5 million other calls here, uh, which I want to be respectful of your time. Before I let you go, 
what is kind of what do you what do you see for the next say two years or so of your channel and how are you going to balance that with kind of your new situation as an entrepreneur because that's tough well I, i'm going to do what i can i mean i've got fortunately i've got some very good editors on the show now i've got about three guys i work with so i'm able to kind of you know shoot a bunch of stuff and then just divide that mm-hmm. up amongst them and i can still keep putting putting out content which is fine i mean how, what's going on the show i mean we're gonna have some cool stuff yum since i'm down in la and uh, i'm sure we're gonna have some really cool guests on the show which is gonna be awesome like i said we've got the guy megadeth guy yes uh paul lonnie was the gentleman's name he just uh he just did a guest appearance i'm gonna see if i can get jeff duncan from armored saint if you're an old metal guy like me that name still has some resonance for you i saw them in 1991 i think with anthrax Oh, wow. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Jeff's a big fan of the show. He's a good friend. I met him a couple of years ago. Great dude. Hopefully he's going to come on the show. And, uh, you know, just some other guys from the whole LA metal scene. I hope to have him on the show. So that'll be really cool. Like I said, I'm going to be doing the tutorial Tuesday thing and uh, that's going to be well. And here's the interesting point. Fearless Gear Reviews, I think, is going to be a monthly or a bi-weekly show now where I'm. they're basically completely independently funded gear reviews. Uh, just completely apart from any kind of corporate fuckery so I can say exactly what's on my mind because I had a very good year and I can afford to fund this now. Freedom. There you go. Yeah, exactly. And it's like... That's why you got to pay attention to money. (laughs) Money doesn't matter, but it buys freedom. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way of looking at it. Can't buy, well, yeah, and whoever said money can't buy happiness, obviously never had any money. I mean, it's true that it doesn't buy happiness, but it buys you the freedom to do the things that will make you happy. Yeah, that that's that, I w- I would say that that's absolutely true, you know, and that's the thing. The one thing I will say is things don't necessarily make you happy. They did a study this somewhere a couple of years back. They said the happiest people in the world who spend their money on experiences. Yeah, and there's like there's another famous study that says something like once you get over $70,000 a year or something like that, you don't become any happier. And obviously you have to adjust for cost of living because 70 grand in Seattle or San Francisco is very different than 70 grand in St. Louis, Missouri. But point being is like once you hit a certain threshold of income, it does not make you any happier. That's true. That's true. And I, I honestly, yeah, once I got over <laughs> NAM, it cured me of my fear of flying there a couple of years ago. Uh, and I just remember my second NAM, 2016 NAM, I was so exhausted by the end of it because we just came down here for a week and just went so hard for like nine days straight or something like that. I got on the plane to go back to back to Windsor and you know, I just sat down on the plane and woke up in Detroit, and that's something I'd never been able to do was sleep on a plane. So as soon as I woke up, I realized, okay, cool. I got home and I told my wife, we're going to England this summer because I've always wanted to see it. And I was ter- always terrified to fly over the ocean. I'm like, fuck it, let's do it. We went and had a blast. So glad I went and did that. And that's the kind of shit that does make you happy. It's like, go get some good old fashioned visceral experience. Go do shit. Good point. Cool. Well, thank you so much for uh, making the time for this. And if anybody has not checked out your channel, I would highly encourage them to do that. You can just search for Glenn Fricker or Spectre Media Group, whichever one you prefer, you'll find it. Thank you so much for joining us. And hopefully we'll see you uh, at NAM this year if it happens. Yeah, if not, hopefully summer NAM. Anyway, Finn, thank you so much for having me on the show. I just don't want to mention before we wrap this up. I listened to your po- I, on my drive down here to Los Angeles. I listened to your podcast the whole way. Oh, thank you. It was great. I was going through rock formations in Utah along the interstate there, and I'm hearing you reference all these punk bands I've never heard of, and I thought that was really cool. So Utah's beautiful. Well, cool. Thank you so much for your time, and I will talk to you soon.
Okay, thanks so much, Finn. Take care. Take care. All right, my friends, that does it for this episode of the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you. Thank you for listening. We sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. If you want to help the show, there's a couple things that you can do. First of all, share it on social media. If you share it, tag us, tag Finn McKenty, that's me, and tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer. Second thing you can do, if you really, really, really love us and really want to support us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this, or you can do none of that, and you can just sit at home thinking about how awesome this podcast is. That works too. Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the one-hit thunder or nothing more than a one-hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to something about the Beatles, now at Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts.